Well, I can't believe that finally we are here together in the same room recording another episode of The Scientists. I can actually see you. Like, I... like you were there. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're a 3D object, not just on my computer screen. <laughs> I was wearing my computer screen, but I was basically reading one place, the other, the other computer, the laptop. It was so crazy and difficult. <laughs> and I'm not going to say anything about editing it. <laughs> that is in a black box. It has, it has been, it's, it's been thrown into the abyss. We do not speak of it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself and even I included an Easter egg at the very end of the last episode. <laughs> so if you heard that, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Hello and welcome to episode 37, where finally we can say things in sync without the problem or issue of internet connections. Yay! Not that easy to record a podcast using internet. I really don't know how we are able to do it in some few other shows, because it is quite hard, I would say. And it's difficult, yeah. Getting all the levels right and getting uh, all the synchronization that you need. Oof. <laughs> but Fine. we're back together now. Yes. And yes. even though we said that we wouldn't mention it again, editing will be a lot easier now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got quite a bit to get through today. Yeah, I don't, and I, I don't know how we are going to do this. We, it might just very well be an hour-long episode once again, but if you enjoy that, we'll, we'll keep doing that. And honestly, we probably, regardless of what you think of how long we should be doing these for, we're just going <laughs> to do whatever we end up doing. We, we're not very good at time management. Uh, here on the scientists, <laughs> we just go and see how we're going. We just we just chat. But let's go to start saying things and filling this episode with content. Of course. And I have compiled here not one, not two, nine space news. Nine. Nine space news. It has been an epic fortnight of space news. <laughs> yes, the last couple of weeks have been completely full of news. I don't know if perhaps some of them were a bit delayed because of what we had had during the last mm. few months. I don't know if that has anything to do. I think that a couple of them know because they are not depending on us. Yes. At least one for sure. <laughs> what I'm going to do is quickly read the nine news because they all deserve to be mentioned here in this episode although we are not going to go provide a full detail of all of them. Otherwise, we will be here for days. <laughs> exactly. We are going to mention a bit more into detail, some few of them. But news that has happened during the last couple of weeks. Number one, we have found the missing baryonic matter of the universe using fast radio burst. There is a new citizen science project that is called Space Fluff, Space what? A space fluff. Space fluff. Yes, trying to find low-surface brightness galaxies in the Forna galaxy cluster. Ah, very cool. There is another amazing new study by a very good friend at the Canary Island Institute for Astronomy, linking perhaps the origin of the solar system with the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy when it started interacting with the Milky Way. Very cool. And we might reserve that for another day. Sounds good. 
Then something else that we will mention for sure the next episode, that is my Astro News 4, it is mapping the light pollution in Australia on Sunday the 21st of June 2020. Excellent, a great thing that we can all get involved in. On the next episode, we will provide a bit more information and detail, but if you want to start checking it, just go to um, mapping the light pollution in Australia on Sunday the 21st of June, that is the summer, so not the summer, <laughs> that is the June solstice. The summer solstice for, for the northern hemisphere. hemisphere, the winter solstice here in Australia and in the southern hemisphere, and the real beginning of winter. But but it's really no, 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 no. We're not going to bait on no. hell today. <laughs> no, no. Space news number five: a cosmic ring of fire found eleven billion light years away. Very nice research. Very nice by, indeed by astronomers here in Australia. Then, uh, number six, just in my arbitrary list, the launch of docking of the Crew Dragon SpaceX mission at the International Space Station. Number seven, and I know that you are going to be very sad about this, because Comet C2020F8 Swan, that one that I was observing very nicely at the beginning of Don't May. Don't say it. Don't say it. No. Yes, it disintegrated. No! <laughs> Why? 2020, why do you have to be like this? What, can we just have one nice comet just stay together and just... Mm. I have seen some few comet candidates for being more or less okay in the next few months. Uh -huh. Sorry, I don't have them here. Perhaps I will have another look for another episode. But definitely, if you try to see the Comet Swan right now, don't. Because mm. it is just a diffuse... Thin, very low surface. Uh, it's just completely broken. So it's no. first Atlas, now Swan. <clears throat> what is next? <laughs> <laughs> For Astro News Eight in my list, something that I almost mentioned in the previous episode, but it was still in the embargo period. Although the episode was going to be released after the embargo, I didn't mention it because using the um, Sphere instrument at the Very Large Telescope at the European Southern Observatory facilities, uh, research have been conducted around the giant star AV Aurigae that have a very dense disk of dust and gas, and astronomers have spotted a prominent spiral structure that have a twist that seems to mark the site where a planet might be forming. It's so cute, it's a little twist. It's about the same distance as Neptune is away from the sun. Yes, more or less, more or less mm. about that. And that is also why I decided to move this to this episode, mm -hmm. just for mentioning it at least, because connecting to our main topic that we will say or reveal later, <laughs> although we already mentioned that our, in our previous episode, and I'm giving a very huge clue right now. <laughs> and number nine, Fast Blue Optical Transients, or FBOTS. And that is for you. <laughs> that is for me. Okay, I'm up. FBOTS. These are fast blue optical transients, or FBOTS for short, which is adorable. FBOTS. Uh, FBOTS. <laughs> so for those who don't know what a transient is, it is an astronomical event that happens in an astronomically short time frame. So that could be anything between seconds to minutes or days, even years. But these are astronomically short time frame. So that's what a transient is. Transients are very important in astronomy. Mm. And they are increasingly important in the last few years because we are starting to have technology that allows us to observe a more larger field of view in the space and surveying the majority of the sky even the same day. And that is why we are starting to find things that are new, exotic, 
that we still even do not know what they are. Mm. Example, the F-bots. Another example, the FRV, or the fast ray burst mm-hmm. in radio that I will mention later. Again, a bit more. <laughs> Sorry, go. <laughs> so the most famous F-bot is AT, 2018 cow, or the cow. Cow. Moo cow. <laughs> yep. Okay. I can't, cannot confirm nor deny if this transient made that noise. No. You know, the sound does not travel through space, so mm. we can never know. Ah, but you can reproduce the change in frequency or something like that. <laughs> that would be very funny <laughs> if it actually made a moo sound. Anyway, so this they, cow... They do that for pulsars. You can yes. hear the pulsars. It's very, very cool. So this, the cow, appeared to be the, blur- the birth of a black hole or neutron star. But there's this newly observed F-Bot. Are you ready for this name? It's very catchy. F-Bot. It's the, oh, no, no, no. Not, not F-Bot. The name of this F-Bot. Cow. It's very... <laughs> the new one. Oh, the new one. <laughs> the new one. The new one. So, its name is CRTS-CSS161010 J045834-081803. How can you memorize those numbers? Well... <laughs> CRTS dash CSS 161010 J045834 dash 081803. 03, okay. Yeah. Or, or CSS 161010 for short. <laughs> I prefer the cow. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? The cow sounds a lot better. Anyway, so this new. Newly observed FBOT CSS161010. Okay, don't, don't say that later. <laughs> <laughs> it's very impressive in terms of speeds and the heaviness of the material that it has expelled, like this event has expelled. So this thing, we don't know what's caused it, there are speculations, but this thing has launched gas and particles at more than 55% the speed of light. Wow. Wow, mm. indeed. Mm. This is most certainly the fastest expulsion of gas and particles ever recorded it's insane and just while let's say an electron can travel near the speed of light cool sure it's it's very not very massive but uh this ejected mass has an estimated mass between one to ten percent the mass of the sun mm-hmm. that's, that's that's up to thirty three thousand times more massive than our planet Wow, at 55% the speed of light. Wow, yeah. That's intense. That is, that is a lot of inertia right and there. And that have been observed in optical wavelengths. In blue optical wavelengths. Um, do you know if there are any kind of observations in x-rays or radio? Yes, there's been x-ray and radio observations as well. Good, okay. Yeah, so because for a, that sort of stuff was going to have... Or an event that's energetic, that is what we should expect. Plenty of radiation also in both X-ray and radio, radio continuum. Um, there have been some few objects that actually the very first time that they were measuring the velocity, it seems that they were having velocities larger than the speed of light mm-hmm. in the core of the center of some active galaxies. I think that, that some of them later were classified as blazers. Oh, yeah? That were having this kind of very energetic jets coming from the center of the supermassive black hole. That is power, everything there. And because of a perspective effect, since that they were moving a bit larger on the speed of light, but it is actually not the case. Because mm. otherwise physics but, would break. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but again, these are, uh, we are talking about 
objects at the supermassive black holes, a hundred million times the mass of the sun, or a billion times the mass of the sun, or even ten billion times the mass mm. of the sun. So they're very kind of different. Very exotic objects in space. Mm -hmm. mm. Good, 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 good. That is... There we go. So I've, I've learned a new word or acronym. F-Bot. F-Bot. <laughs> and cow. And cow. Moo. And the other one, don't mention it again. <laughs> CSS161010. Did I actually remember that correctly? I did. <laughs> yeah. Said it enough. <laughs> it's been... You know, kids, repetition. Repetition is key for learning many things. That's it. Anyway. Or, you know, learning your times tables. Yeah, <laughs> that too, that too. Okay, we've had a beefy space news section, but we have one last bit left. Unhell, tell us about these fast radio bursts. Yeah, well, it is just uh, something that really, I will say that it is one of the astronomy news of the year. I will consider this Ooh. one, believe me. I'm we're, not still, sure. we're still early in the year, no, only halfway we're, through. We are still early, and this research should be confirmed independently. I will say that too, but this discovery is connecting many things together. Mm -hmm. um, let me try to summarize it and probably it will take a bit more time than what I wanted, but anyway. We know that using the observations by the Planck satellite mm -hmm. of the European Space Agency, that is the satellite that has been studying the cosmic background radiation, the receipt of the universe is 69% dark energy, 26% mm -hmm. dark matter, and a bit less than 5% it is the baryonic matter. Which is us. The atoms. The stuff is, that we can see. Exactly. The, what is made in us, the stars and the gas that we are seeing and so on. Or as Katie Max says, the sparkly stuff. That means that in all the matter that exists in the universe, only around 16% it is baryonic. It is what it is us. But during the last... I would say 30, 40 years, astronomers have had a big problem. Mm. When we are counting the numbers of stars that we have with the gas that is there in all galaxies and so on, we find that we can only account for perhaps half of that baryonic matter that is observed in the cosmic background radiation. Oh, there that is, is a big problem. There is a problem because there is the problem of the missing matter. Mm. The missing matter, it is something different to the dark matter. Yes, the, the matter, it's not dark matter. It is not dark matter. The missing matter, it is the uh, atoms. That, that should be there. That should be there, and we do not know where they are. Mm. We didn't know where they were. <laughs> <laughs> what astronomers have been doing, it is using distant objects, for example, quasars, mm -hmm. and looking through it, through the light of the quasar, and we are finding plenty of features in the spectrum that are absorptions because of clouds of gas that are located in the intergalactic space. Mm. So for many years, the assumption have been, okay, these missing baryons should be in diffuse intergalactic clouds between the galaxies that we don't see them. Because if you don't have a star that is illuminating mm. the gas, they are just diffuse gas, you don't see it. It's just, it's just out there. So it's just difficult to see. You might think, now, what does it have to do with the first ray burst? Well, the first ray burst are this kind of transient in radio that have a length of only a fraction of a millisecond. That's very, very, very fast. Very, very fast. Very, very short. 
So we don't know what fast reversed are. We have detected some few, and Australia, it is actually doing plenty of things in this field. It mm -hmm. is something that is very much led by astrophysicists in Australia. Well, we have a lot of great radio telescopes to use. Exactly. Actually, the very first of these fast radio bursts was discovered using the Parkes radio telescope. Wonderful. In 2007, mm -hmm. although the burst was observed in 2001. It was checking mm. archive data. Yeah. And later, with the ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Race Pathfinder in Western Australia, mm -hmm. that has a very large field of view, 11 full moons in diameter. That's pretty big. And it is able to observe all the sky in just one day. And that is also why it is able to find this kind of explosion. So. I mean, like if you're, if you're looking at the entire sky during the day, you're bound to find something. You're bound to find something. <laughs> and, and I remember that uh, one of the key projects that is called EMU, Evolutionary Map of the Universe, that is trying to understand the radio continuum properties of the universe, mainly stuff forming galaxies and AGNs, mm -hmm. or radio galaxies, or after galactic nuclei. I remember that uh, Ray Norris was always mentioning, we are going to find things that we do not expect. And that is one of the cases with the first rivers. Mm. Let's say that. Despite the very large field of view that ASCA has, it also has very good spatial resolution. Just few are seconds. Oh, that's that's very good. Probably tens of seconds. But it depends how you combine the data. Of course. Uh, you can achieve probably with a very large baselines around a bit less than 10 seconds. But that is a lot in radio continuum at uh, mm. centimeters frequency. That is a lot. Yes. Uh, but even using uh, getting a precision of around 30 seconds to one minute, for optical astronomers are able to identify that it's a galaxy there or some object there. Mm, of course. It is good, good enough. That is, uh, in some way, what um, a team of researchers in Australia have been doing. So they found a spike and was like, telescopes, unite! Look at this spot. <laughs> so they found some few of these fast radio bursts and they decided to, okay, we know where they're coming from, let's go to study them using optical spectroscopy. Ah. to determine distances and some few other properties. Because something important that I have not mentioned, it is that these fast ray bursts also have a very interesting property, that they are so narrow in space that it's just a peak in all frequencies, mm -hmm. that you observe a peak. But when that radiation is going through material, there is a phenomenon that happens that some wavelengths are delayed and some other wavelengths uh, advance. They like pass through without much deviation. So it's kind of like refraction with a telescope, mm, is it? It's not exactly at uh, the refraction. It has to, it has to be. Yeah, no, it's actually, Yes, it is refraction. Yes, it is. It is a kind of refraction. Sorry. Yes, it is a kind of refraction. It is just that wavelength radiation with a slightly different wavelengths are moving at a different speed, very mm. different speed. So instead of getting a pulse that is coming at the same time. We get a delay. frequencies, we have pulse. lateral delays depending on mm. the frequency. And there is a way of measuring that, that is called the dispersion measurement. And that is directly related with the amount of matter you have been passing through, the mm. density of the matter. Well, if you know the distance to these objects, and you know the density of that, combining optical, the distance, Mm -hmm. using the optical spectroscopy, plus knowing the dispersion measurement that we get from the radio, then we can determine the 
total density mm. of baryonic matter through there. And that's the very important part because a lot of people think that this missing matter, like we said earlier, is dark matter. But that's the defining thing is that it is interacting with electromagnetic radiation, which dark matter does not. Exactly. Baryonic matter does. Yes, exactly. So when you do the calculations, they use some few of these FRBs, and that is the very nice plot. And you compare what you obtain with the numbers that the cosmic background radiation is providing, they are matching very, very well. Mm. Definitely within the errors, much more than the errors. And this, this has only five, six points. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> that means that this observation is allowing to measure the amount of baryonic matter in the universe using fast ray bursts as a probes. Mm -hmm. And they even have been able to establish a relationship because the farther fast ray burst is located, the larger the dispersion measurement is going to be, mm -hmm. which is a kind of equivalent to the hubble lemaitre law, but for radio burst. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so that is why I'm talking that it is connecting different things. So you are connecting cosmology with galaxies, that is easy, with <laughs> optical and radio and physics, the missing baryonic matter. Talk about interdisciplinary. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that is why I consider that this should be included as one of the most important discoveries of the year. I think it has, it holds a pretty, pretty high standard. Cool. Cool. What a space news section. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, now that we've said all of this in this episode, next episode, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> we've, we've expended all of our space news for the year. <laughs> nothing new can... No, no, no many, for, more, for many more things sure, can happen. For sure, for next episode, we have to talk about the um, program with the light pollution. Inviting, of course. Inviting everyone to have... And we'll give you more details yeah. about that in our next episode but now on to some feedback yeah we and some have, comments yeah, and questions feedbacks and comments our friend gary he wrote some few very nice things about us in facebook that i am a bit shy to read all of them so i'm not going to oh. <laughs> i'm going to mention the questions one it is about uh, remember that in the previous episode we were talking about the expansion of the universe mm -hmm. he asks the expansion of the galaxy only the space between objects expanding can I say it candy? Candy, kinda. It kinda blows my god. You to have touched very briefly a couple of times. Can you go into this a bit more at some point? So, a bit more. We, well, we did have Cosmology 101 yes, a but, few episodes ago, but we can have Cosmology 102. Yeah, we can have. <laughs> I think we are going to have eventually Cosmology 102. Also, uh, because not only Cosmology 101 have been one of the most listened episode <laughs> oh well i guess with that statistic we must do some more <laughs> also it seems that people love this kind of themes of course and um, now that i have been preparing my lectures about cosmology for astro 1010 at macquarie uni i have found there are some few important misconceptions about cosmology excellent that it will be great if we say them here loud and clear i like that and debunking well not so much debunking but like uh, discussing misconceptions is always good as well because it's a, it's a common it's a common thing that people think. Yeah, and particularly with cosmology, when we are doing analogies, we have to be very careful. Yes, 
Because analogies, while they can be very good, they make things a bit too simple sometimes. I'm going to give you a tease. The expansion of the universe, we can use the same equations that we use for a Doppler effect. It is not a Doppler effect. <laughs> Stay tuned for Stay more. Tuned. <laughs> Second question from Gary. Spiral galactic rotations. Just how fast does that happen? To me, and he says, I'm a reasonable intelligent geek. It would seem that they have moved so slowly we have had a hard time telling which direction they're rotating. Great question. In terms of our own galaxy, I don't know enough about it actually, but in terms of our own galaxy, we know that the sun is moving around the center of the Milky Way galaxy mm -hmm. at, what, 222 kilometers yeah, per second something or something? Like mm -hmm. So, and we know that part, but when we look at galaxies far away, especially if they're not quite face-on mm -hmm. to us. If we look at a galaxy that is partially side-on or perfectly side-on, when we observe the stars uh, with spectroscopy, mm -hmm. we can observe that one side of the galaxy is slightly red-shifted and the other side is slightly blue-shifted. And so we can see that rotation there through spectroscopy. What about for face-on galaxies, though? No, for face-on galaxies, it is impossible to do. Impossible, it, there we go. It is in the case you have a perfectly face-on galaxy. Of course, because which is rare. We will, we will see some kind of effect. We will always see that is one part that is a bit more redder than the other one, mm -hmm. uh, because we have to consider that besides the spiral movement, or the spiral disk, there always a bit of a movement up and down. Yes, because we, we wobble. The, and mm -hmm. we have the warp. Yes. Remember that even our Milky Way galaxy is warped. Mm. The, the, the edges have this kind of structure and not completely flat. <laughs> it's a single Pringle. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> also regarding the sun, I think the sun needs at around 200, between 200 and 250. I never completely remember the sat number. Oh, how long it takes how, to do a rotation? Yes. I think it's it's interesting because it's or it, it's very similar to 220. 220, I, but it is, or 200 or 250. I have found the two numbers, but I don't remember that. I should have checked. Millions of years. Yes, I mean, at this point. Important, <laughs> including the units here, millions of years. I mean, at this point, what's the difference between 200 million years and 250 million years? Yeah, it's important. It doesn't matter if it is 200 and 250. I can check in the future. But the, the, the very nice thing to think about this, it is that when the dinosaurs were roaming the Earth, the Sun, the solar system, the Earth, were on the other part of the galaxy. See, that's another... That's another thing that I don't I don't quite agree with this statement. Why? Because the the galaxy is rotating. Yes, in terms of um let's say at this point we're on the side of the galaxy that's looking towards Andromeda. Mm -hmm. Let's just say let's say that. It's not quite true cuz you know 3D yeah, yeah, yeah. 3D is a thing in space. But the <laughs> I just I just disagree a little bit because the the while the galaxy is not like a frisbee and it doesn't rotate perfectly by itself, mm -hmm. like our collection of stars around us would still be. And we talked also a bit about that in the previous episode, but when we are talking about this, we are considering other galaxies, the yes. cosmic background radiation, for example, mm. yeah, something that is, we're not going to see at rest because there is anything at rest in the universe, but something Relatively. that we <laughs> at, at reference. For mm. example, we know that there is an structure that we call the Great Attractor mm -hmm. that is hidden for the Milky Way. We cannot see it because mm -hmm. it is in the disk of the Milky Way. It is behind the center of the Milky Way. We ah. see the effect of 
the velocities of galaxies moving into that direction, we have detected some few of objects in radio because with radio wave in H1 in 21 centimeters, we can see through the galaxy. So if dinosaurs knew a little bit about astronomy, they would be, they they would would have been able to see that structure that is much, much larger than the super big cluster of galaxies. That's really cool. So So yeah, it depends on reference, frame of reference. And even, and I also agree with you in the sense that the stars that are more or less in the local vicinity should have been more or less in the (laughs) other part because everything is turning. But at the end of the day, every star is free to move. It is. Yes. So everyone has a very own peculiar velocity, particular movement. So who knows? Mm. Because something else that we many times say, it is that the sisters of the sun, the stars that were born with the sun 4.6 billion years ago. In some sort of open star cluster yes, that we would have been a part of. Although many of those stars might literally be right now in the other part of the galaxy. True. Because in 4.6 billion years, mm. they have had plenty of times for doing that. And on top of that, remember, we have galaxy interactions. Yes. For example, the galaxy interaction with the dwarf Sagittarius galaxy. Which potentially births our solar system. Exactly. Mm, I think we have another theme here that we should try to put together for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So many ideas for content. Haha. <laughs> but we still have another feedback question from the previous episode that we didn't answer. Because we reserved it for this episode. Exactly. And that is from Mark Skillington, that on the 19th of May, he asked us in Twitter, Hi, Kirsten and Angel, Martin, Burwood, Victoria here. Would you explain, please, the reason I have heard the planets have moved in or out to from the sun and what evidence has been noticed that has formed those hypotheses, please? Let's do it! So, for our main topic for this episode, episode 37 of The Scientists, we are going to discuss migrating planets. Ta-da! Da-da-da-da! <laughs> Where should we start? I think we are going to start with the two real protagonists of this history. Mm-hmm. That are two planets that we have not talked too much about them in The Scientist. Can I guess what one of them is? I d- I'm pretty sure I know what one of them is, for sure. It's hot Jupiter's, right? Yes, too, but I'm talking about the solar system. Oh, in the solar system? In the solar system. Ooh, a plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) We are talking about solar system because there are a couple of planets that we have not talked too much. And also there is a bit of misconception with these two planets Mm -hmm. that are Uranus and Neptune. Ah. These are the ice giants of the solar system. And these are where the very first time the migration of the planets was observed. Wait, what? Wait, what? 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 Oh, plot twist. Plot twist! (laughs) (laughs) So let me just... uh, I'm I'm looking at Kirsten right now. You should see her My face is just like... I think that she uh, was not expecting this. I was not expecting this. You were not expecting this. I was very confused when you... (laughs) I knew that you were going to be talking about what we are going to be talking, but I wanted to first mention this. See, that's I was I was very confused when you messaged me last night on Twitter when we were talking about what we were going to say today, saying that you want to talk about Neptune and Uranus. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I'm just gonna, I, I trust Aunt Hell. 
And now I'm intrigued. And I'm intrigued. Uh, I wanted to use this uh, opportunity to talk a bit more about the ice giants. Mm -hmm. um, although perhaps um, not too much, I don't know. Well, let me put at least into perspective. Um, remember that Uranus was the very first uh, planet about discovered? Yes, yes, that, was, that makes sense because all the, all the other ones are visible to visible. the naked eye. And that's why we have a seven days week. <laughs> is it? Yes. Ah, cool. Monday, it is a moon. Tuesday, originally it was uh, Tuesday, the, the, the Marte, that is made from, originally it was Mars. Oh, oh the, yeah, Lunedi, Matri, Venedi. Oh, but, my Italian is gone. But that is also in Spanish, you know, the yes, Latin languages. Course, yeah. So only in English, there are a couple of days that have been changed. So Tuesday was coming from... Mars? For, it, it is Mars yeah. in Latin, and it is in all the Latin languages. Martes, it is mm -hmm. in Spanish. Um, but in it is coming from, uh, I don't remember, the uh, a goddess. I think it was a goddess in the uh, Nordic mythology. Cool. Um, then we have Wednesday. Venerdì for V? That Venus? Was, um, no, that is Mercury. Oh. That is also something that was changed. So in, in the English, in English, there are three days that are different to the Latins. Mm -hmm. But original, they, are, they are originally coming from the planets. Yeah, that's really cool. So that would be the Moon, Mars, Mercury. Mm -hmm. Then we have Jueves. That is Jovian, Jupiter, that is Thursday. Ah, oh, Jovedi. There we go. That's Thursday in Italian. Friday, Viernes, Frida, uh, that is Venus. Yep. And then we have Saturday. Sabato. Saturn, Saturn Sabato. Yep. And then Sun. So we have the seven Ooh. objects that we are observing moving in the skies. That is really cool. I didn't know that. No, you know. More plot twists. <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> well, that is why the discovery of Uranus by William Herschel in 1781 was so fascinating. Which, side note, I just want to mention here, Uranus was not always going to be called Uranus. No. William Herschel wanted to call it Georgium after King George III to get that cash money from the king. That is very important. <laughs> very important, of course, and it's still happening anyway. Um, <laughs> it was good that at the end, Johann Bode, that was a German astronomer at the same time, suggested the name of Uranus, mm -hmm. that is the father of Saturn yes. in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. um, and U God of Uranus the sky? Uranus it is in Greek, mm -hmm. in Saturn it is Roman, Saturn is Kronos in uh, Greek mythology. Uh. Perhaps another day we can talk about the mythology in the skies. That would be very cool. This planet, it is an amazing object, not only because it is different to the rest of the planets, mm -hmm. but also because it has seasons that we define by astronomy, remember? <laughs> <laughs> but the rotation axis of Uranus is completely tilted down. Yes, it is. It's uh, I like to call Uranus Neptune after a few drinks. <laughs> it's on its side. <laughs> that have very extreme seasons. Mm -hmm. So there is half of the year, and the year in Uranus, it is 84. 84 Earth years, I was years. way off. <laughs> Good part of that, only an hemisphere is receiving the light. Mm. And then we have the spring and autumn, when they have falling in, in the bottom sphere, mm -hmm. and then the other end. It but is like but a, half of each sphere, see, oh, well, I guess it's the rotation time as because well. Of the they do rotate, it, and Uranus rotates once every 10 hours or so. Mm -hmm. But the most important point about Uranus, um, and also about Neptune, it is that they are 
what we call ice giants. Mm. Many times, and particularly in old textbooks, we still say, okay, we have the Jovian planets or the giant gas planets. Mm. And we are talking about Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And we put them all together in the same category. That is wrong. Yes, which I did make that mistake on a TikTok a few weeks ago. So that is mm. wrong. So we have to say, okay, Jupiter and Saturn, they are gas giants. Yes. They are relatively similar. They have some differences, of course, but more or less the same thing. Jupiter it is much more massive. Mm-hmm. And Saturn has an extraordinary set of rings. Yes. But we have Uranus and Neptune that they also are made majoritarily for fiber and helium, but they have a very large amount, with respect to mm-hmm. Jupiter and Saturn, of ices. Yes. Of water, methane, ammonia, and also mixed with hydrogen and silicates. These two planets, Uranus and Neptune, they contain a higher proportion of this heavy element than Jupiter and Saturn. And even the density, the average intensity is much larger than mm. what we find in, in Jupiter and Saturn. And that is why we call them ice giants. Yes. To distinguish them. And these are a kind of planets that, thanks to Kepler, particularly the satellite that have discovered many exoplanets using the transit technique, we have been able to see that there are many of these. Mm. Funny thing about that, when we are talking about extrasolar planets or exoplanets that are the same category that Uranus and Neptune, we classify them as Neptunes <laughs> and not Uranuses. <laughs> I think there's a, a very, very good reason for that. Yeah, I'm not going to be talking more and more about the, these beautiful planets. Let me also mention a couple of things about Neptune. Neptune was discovered in 1846 by Johann Gale. And it is very interesting because it was the first planet, or the other planet that was discovered, but with predictions because the movement of Uranus was not exactly what astronomers were finding. It was not what was expected. Independently, the English, British astronomer John Adams and French astronomer Urban Leverrier independently computed that they had some discrepancies in the orbital motions of Uranus, and then it was... It was John, mathematically John, predicted. Yes, John Gale found Neptune in 1846. Neptune it is a bit smaller than Uranus, mm-hmm. but a bit more massive than Uranus. Mm. Which is... So, skinnier, but thicker. Yes. <laughs> but the interior composition, it is basically the same thing. It has a very large mantle of ice, water, and rock. Although Neptune has a bit more internal heat than Uranus. Interesting. And the other thing is that the the atmosphere is also slightly different. Slightly different because there's a bit more methane in Neptune, and that is why we see these very nice images that only were taken with the Voyager 2 spacecraft in 1989 that are these kind of spheres, and also the reason why it is this kind of dark blue color Mm. that is so beautiful in Neptune. So, where do these planets come into the migrating part of the story? Thank you for asking. This is where Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Well, I'm going to I'm going to say this looking at your face. Looking at your face. Should we should we should I record this reaction or something? Uh, uh, we can post this. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going to do it. You're going to do it? Okay. I'm going, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to keep this for. So let's say. Mm. Uh, okay. So, so I'm going to say this recording with the phone, the expression that, I don't know, Kirsten is going to have. I'm nervous. Yes. I'm excited though. Yes. What 
Uranus and Neptune have to do with migrating planets? Well, thank you for asking. The reason it is that not only that Uranus and Neptune were created much closer to the Sun than what they are now, but also that Neptune was closest to the Sun than Uranus. Stop it! No! <laughs> what? Yes. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. The only way we can explain the formation of the solar system as it is now, it is considering that all the large planets in the outer part of the solar system have moved away, and not, not once, but several times. Uh, first going a bit inwards, then going outwards, then Uranus... Got and in, shuffling got, themselves? Got in, overpassing Neptune. I've <laughs> been crazy. But, what? And not only that, as you have also There's recorded. more? There, <laughs> And then I'm going to record this again. There is more, because for this also to work and for understanding the structure of the solar system as it is now, and not only the outer planets, but the inner planets and, and the objects in the Kuiper belt, the dispersed disk in the, in the standard part of the solar system and so on, it should have been another Neptune-like planet that was ejected because of the movement of the other planets. What? <laughs> Originally, our solar system should have had at least five gas planets. Oh, I thought you were to say five Neptunes. <laughs> Not five Neptunes, but five. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, okay. See, I thought that that was going to go towards maybe, you know, planet X, planet nine, or whatever you want to call it these days, but no, ejected? Ejected. No, there have been still a study saying perhaps the missing planet or the planet that is... Perhaps hidden in the uh, external part Distant of the solar system, in the solar system uh, yeah. might be one of these super Earth spells, but the model that's. Or it might be the, a primordial black no, hole. The, the, the model do not agree with that because for mm. the model to work, it has to be a planet like Uranus or mm. Neptune. And a planet like Uranus or Neptune, if it were where they say it should be, we should have seen it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that is why I said that this history of about migrating planet it is so exciting. It's <laughs> so <laughs> what the plot twist upon plot twist upon plot twist. I hope you listening right now are just as mind blown as I am right now because I, I, I don't I I can't form a sentence anymore. <laughs> the model that describes that it is called the nice model. Not nice because it is nice. <laughs> is Trust nice. astronomers to call it nice. <laughs> but so what's the acronym? Nice, 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 and I C E. But not nice because of it is nice. That oh, is also nice. Neptune ice. No, 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 no. Because it is named for the location of the observatory de Côte d'Azur. I don't know how to pronounce it in French, where it was initially developed. Oh, in nice. in Nice, in, in France. Nice. I see, nice. I see. So I should have said nice, not nice. <laughs> I read that in English. <laughs> or confusing you even more. <laughs> that was that was so good. Oh, you've done it again, Angel. You've done it again. <laughs> well. So, yeah, and that explains plenty of things that we have even observing in... Just within our own solar system. In, in the terrestrial planets. Because yeah. there is something that happened after the formation of the solar system. I mean, let's go to do a big recap. Formation of the solar system, mm -hmm. it is just that we have the proto-sun forming an accretion disk and we are forming this kind of little grains mm -hmm. for condensation, plenty of gas, 
plenty of little particles that are merging together, forming what we are calling the planetesimals. Yes. These kind of little pieces that are going to merge together harmonically to form planets. They're going to be cleaning each one, mm -hmm. their orbits, forming larger and larger bodies. That is how we understand that. Protoplanetary janitors. Very well. Very well seen. And we can also, um, because of the composition of the uh, the disk, we can say, okay, the heaviest elements were going to be found in the inner part. Because it's hotter and they can form these more massive and yes. heavier and elements. And we will not find ice. No. Or even gas. Yes. Yeah, because the gas, the majority of the hydrogen helium, mm -hmm. uh, have been lost because of the intense radiation from the sun. So yes. in the moment that the sun started to be a star and not mm -hmm. a proto star of any kind of other phase, it will clean all this kind of... Blow it all out. Exactly. But that was different in the outer part of the solar system. And we know that there was a period at the beginning of the formation of the terrestrial planets that we call the heavy bombardment phase, mm -hmm. where we had plenty of collisions with asteroids and any other debris and still planetesimals around there, mm -hmm. and even comets and everyone, everything there. And we know that that lasted for some few hundreds of... Hundred million, million years. years, yep. But after that, we, we, we know that because we can measure the rocks in the planets, mm -hmm. rocks in the moon, and we can also estimate uh, the how old a surface is, counting number of craters and how the craters uh, have one on top of the other and so on. Mm -hmm. But the intensity of collisions in the planets, in the terrestrial planets, was diminishing, was just getting away, and suddenly it started again as crazy. And that Ooh. is a phase that we call the late heavy bombardment, mm -hmm. and that is explained as a consequence of the migration of Uranus and Neptune. Oh, because their, their gravities would have influenced that bombardment. Yes, to the outer part of the solar system, disturbing what it was, the, let's say that way, Primi Kuiper belt. Mm -hmm. It was even much larger than the well, it's still larger than the asteroid belt, but plenty of other objects around there. Mm -hmm. Not only they ejected plenty of these uh, large pieces of rocks into the inner solar system, but also the movement of the of Uranus and Neptune. And that I'm going to say that that was consequence of Jupiter, of course. <laughs> that was Jupiter doing yep. Jupiter and Saturn and some few resonances between the orbit of the large planet mm. because they also moved. Yes. So Jupiter also was moved depending on the model a bit closer and then going backwards and anyway. The details are a bit tricky but because you have to consider many things for the simulations and the models but mm. they are more or less agreeing in this kind of structure. At the same time, these disturbances ejected another planet in the solar system yeah. that was located around that. And that also made that Neptune was moved to the a bit more larger, to, to, to the larger Further out than Uranus. Than Uranus. Wow. What can, a history. You can even see in, in, in this little plot here, if you want to go, just for giving you an idea, the dark blue here that was Neptune at the beginning, uh -huh. and that is Uranus, and that yeah. is all the debris in the tenor part, and yeah. then they were disturbed, and they moved, and the That's position cool. that we have now, and you see how they swapped. That's very cool. They swapped. The position of Uranus and Neptune swaps. When we are talking about migrating planets, or well, the first idea that I have about 
talking about migrating planets, it is what has happened in the solar system. Mm. But there is more. And there is more. And that is where you enter in. This is where I come in and talk about hot Jupiters. So, as we've mentioned a little bit today, uh, when planets are forming in the solar system or in other star systems, generally you have the rocky planets closer to the sun, closer to the star, because heavier elements are fused and heavier elements are formed in these hotter environments. And then in the colder environments, we have more of the gas. And because of the blowing out of the solar system, things happen and planets swap sides and <laughs> <laughs> everything happens. So beyond this thing called the ice line is where we see the boundary between close and far in solar system and in star systems. And beyond this ice line is where we have the gas giants. Now, sometimes I actually do not know why, but sometimes Jupiter-like planets can migrate towards the inside part of the ice line. Do you know why that happens? Um, there are some few hypotheses. Um, usually, I think one that is getting to rain it is that there was another exoplanet around there. <laughs> Perhaps even at the end, the exoplanet was rejected. We are finding increasing evidences that planets are easily ejected from their solar systems. Mm. And they might be many, 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 many free-floating planets dark out there in the galaxy. Rogue planets. Yes. <laughs> oh, that, I like this for another episode. That Rogue planets. Rogue ah, planets. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm kind of going to go a little bit around the corner here with hot Jupiters and talk about something else as a, that is a consequence of hot Jupiters migrating closer to their host star. What, what, before before quoting there, just for being clear for people who are not used to hot Jupiters, mm -hmm. so we are talking about objects that are more or less the same mass of Jupiter, sometimes even a bit larger, sometimes about half of the mass, but more or less in that range, mm -hmm. that are located with respect to their stars much closer than Mercury is from the Sun. Oh, I didn't sometimes, realize that part. Sometimes oh. even only 10% of the distance between Mercury and the Sun. Wow. The very first two exoplanets to be discovered with the two main techniques, 51 Pegasi B with the radial technique, mm -hmm. and the other one that I don't remember the, because it has a funny name. But CSS 161010. But anyway, it, the, the other one that was discovered using the transit technique, mm -hmm. both of them are hot Jupiters. Mm -hmm. And people were skeptic at the very beginning because they were not expecting to see a planet like Jupiter orbiting that close to the sun, the star, orbiting only in five days. Five days? Five days. Wow. An object like Jupiter moving around its star in five days. And that is why they're called hot Jupiters, because they still are receiving, not only receiving, but also having plenty of radiation. So the, mm -hmm. the temperature, usually in the external layers of these planets, are around a thousand kelvins. That's pretty hot. That's pretty hot. Um. So anyway, thank you, Angel, for... Blowing my mind again with how close these hot Jupiters are. But and a consequence of a hot Jupiter is Jupiter, like the Jupiter in our solar system, has 79 moons. That we know of. That we know of. 
at the moment. <laughs> so we'll find more. Maybe, maybe that's what will happen this year. We'll find more moons around Jupiter. <laughs> it's bound to happen soon. Um, Saturn can't stay on top for long. Hmm. So Jupiter has many, many moons. Once a Jupiter-like planet with potentially many moons migrates closer to its host star, the moons orbiting around these planets, their orbits get changed due to the changing gravitational influence of the star. And I'm going to use a very technical word here. This effect is strong enough to yeet the moon out of its orbit. Unhel's <laughs> <laughs> looking very confused. <laughs> very confused in that moment. Anyway. So for those who uh, may not be aware of the word yeet um, with that exact inflection, uh, it is basically when something gets thrown out of its orbit. Ejected. Ejected. <laughs> That's right. So then these moons become what is called a Plunet. A what? A plunet. Plunet. Because ah, these these no, previously known moons are now acting like a planet. A planet. So uh, it's a plunet. And it is so adorable. But they are very unstable. Hmm. They do not last very long. Uh, and within about one million years, which I know sounds long to us, but is very, in, very in short. Astronomy. Like, in astronomy. A Think click. on an eye. Very, very quick in astronomy. So within one million years, 75% of planets crash into either the planet, mm -hmm. the hot Jupiter, or the star. Hmm. So they don't last very long. Are not ejected even from the system? Probably. Oh, I'm not too sure. Probably. Well, I mean, that's the other 25%. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> and I want to give a special shout out to Dr. Eloise Stevans. Uh, she is at Sidona High. So... S-Y-D-O-N-A-H-I. Apologies, Heloise, if I've said that incorrectly. But she made this really cool What is a Plunet uh, poster. Mm -hmm. And I definitely recommend going and following her on Twitter because she wow. is incredible. She is amazing. She's providing plenty of very nice information about different astronomical phenomena. and mm. preparing very beautiful charts like the one you have there. Yes, there's also what is a supernova, what is a star, and what is a white dwarf. And I recommend also, by following her, checking out her Bad Astronomy series. Because <laughs> it is very, very funny. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Perhaps I have to... Have she, does, she does a very good um, uh, Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Bad ah, Hertzsprung-Russell no, yeah, diagram. No, I know that one. Yes. yes. I know. I've seen that one. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. Good. So there we go. So you, we've added a few new words to our repertoire today. <laughs> Plunets being one of them. Plunets, yes. And... Wops. And no, F-Bots. F-Bots. Moo. But there we go. Okay. Hot Jupiters and Neptune and Uranus. Wild. That's all I have to say. Just wild. So let's go to thank Mark Skinnington again for suggesting us to talk about this. And giving us the inspiration for this entire episode. Thank you <laughs> very, very much. Thank you. But it's time for us to end our episode on a much-loved section, What's Up? And we haven't done an object like this in a while. Most of our objects recently have been either galaxies or stars or star clusters. But today we're going to do a planet. Well, in episode 32 we talk about Venus, but we have to go back to episode 15 when What's Up? was Vesta. There we go. It's so all the way, more than half of our time we've been putting out episodes. 12 Saturn and 7 Jupiter. 
Um, basically, that was it. That was it. Wow. Well, today we're going to give Mercury a go because right now is a good time to start observing Mercury because on, well, depending on when you're listening to this episode. So on Thursday, the 4th of June, the day that we release this episode, Mercury will be at its maximum eastern elongation, which is its maximum eastern separation from the sun. Exactly. Which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it will be the maximum, the highest the distance, highest the t- highest altitude over the, horizon. over the horizon. Because that depends of where you are in Earth. Yes. There we go. But it, right now is a really great time to observe no, Mercury because it's, yes. it is nice and high. It's higher than Venus now, I think. Mm-hmm. I, no, but uh, Venus is right now crossing in what we call the inferior uh, uh, inferior conjunction which which does happen on hold on this is also on my <laughs> where is it this week actually it's the same day uh, it's the week, same day yeah. you, venus week? inferior conjunction also occurs on the same day the 4th of june the 4th of june there we go um in the last couple of weeks three weeks perhaps we have been getting very nice images of both venus and Mercury, particularly Sun astronomers have been able to capture amazing images of mm. a very tiny crescent, just Venus. So beautiful. Beautiful that you see some effects in of the because Venus we are seeing only the atmosphere and we see the the the, the, the horns of Venus mm. that are not defined but are blurry. It's, it's elongated. It's so cool. Beautiful images and also with the moon around. Mm. The moon was there last week. It's beautiful. From Australia, let's go to say the number from here, <laughs> because we have this in Australia. <laughs> but from, from Australia, it is actually a very good moment for observing Mercury. Mm. I have seen that the majority of the time that I have seen Mercury in my life have been in this country. Very easy in this country. I don't know why. Perhaps because the skies are usually much more clear than in Europe. Maybe. But also because we are a bit closer to the equator. And then it is a, a bit... Bit easier mm. to do that. Um, now, if only these clouds would go away. Hopefully, so, <laughs> I miss um, the sky. There is a little history about Copernicus that he was complaining, or complaining, or saying very sadly when he was in, uh, in the bed before dying that he never had a chance of observing Mercury because it was always very low over the horizon in the northern Europe. Ah, but go. from here. For Australia, well, Australia is very big, so I'm going to say the latitudes that Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Adelaide... So the southern Perth, half of... The, the lower part of Australia. Um, we, we will get Mercury at an altitude of around 14 degrees. That's pretty good. That's In the that's, sunset. In the sunset. In sunset. Well, in I sunset. mean, in sunset, I think it's... I prefer looking at the planets during that sunset time because you have that... It's not quite as contrast between the bright planet and the the darkness of space and the night sky behind it so i find Mm. it has a a bit nicer detail Mm. during that twilight time that is true so during all this week six nine twelve till the 15 of june we still will be able to see relatively high in the sky nice so i i completely agree with you that it is a perfect object for whatsapp today to talk a bit about Mercury, because we haven't mentioned Mercury in uh, too much. Not much at all. So perhaps another episode we should be... It's a very underrated planet, isn't it? Yeah, although it is an amazing planet, Mm. with plenty of features that we still don't understand. And I always like to trick students, and I show a photo of Mercury and everyone, the moon, the moon! (laughs) Sorry, guys, that is 
Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, as always, thank you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, send them our way uh, on Twitter at the Scientists. You can send us through email, thescientist at gmail.com, or on Facebook, like Gary did recently. Thank you very much, friend of the show. And we will see you for our next episode. Mm-hmm. For the next episode, you know that at least we will be talking about this project of uh, light pollution here in Australia, and perhaps explore some of the other news that we haven't mentioned too much today, but probably there will be more news happening. <laughs> Fingers crossed, we can only hope. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm realizing, I forgot another oh, there's a space news. Oh no, what is oh, it? That's about some case people working at NASA have discovered that there is a parallel universe. <laughs> and time goes backwards. Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I forgot to mention that one. I knew that there was another one. <laughs> we have had enough. Anyway, thanks for listening. An episode full of facts, science, and amazing casting faces. (laughs) Which I'm sure will be posted on Twitter in a very timely manner. (laughs) Okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.